I can actually see your faces. This is a marvelous day. Though this is the wrong sermon to be able to see your faces, and you'll find out why in a few minutes. Uh, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to bounce all over the place this morning, so don't get too uh, set in that passage. Uh, if you're really good at, remember sword drills, anybody? We're basically going to do that today. So we're going to look at a, a bunch of different passages as we go through. But uh, first things first, do not forget, I'm sure Ernie said this, I was not really coherent for a few minutes there. There are going to be snacks after church. So stay and eat, and there's coffee that was already made, and I take no credit for how bad it might be. Um, I followed all the instructions properly, but I don't drink coffee, so if you need more coffee, you just do what you got to do, and uh, we'll be all good. Let's, uh, let's pray real quick as we start this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, thank you for today. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have been doing in these past days and weeks and months. God, as we open scripture, as we seek to find clarity, as we look to you, we pray that you would make clear to us what so often gets muddied. Help us to understand what your word teaches to us this morning and help our hearts to be open to receive what you want us to hear. Amen. All right, so this morning, uh, if, you're, if you're visiting, welcome. Uh, what we are doing through the summer is this series of, of questions that Ernie has mentioned, and I've gotten uh, several questions in the last couple of days, but need a couple of more to get through summer. So if you have another uh, interesting question, good question, uh, if you think it's a bad question, that's okay too, because there's no such thing as bad questions. We'll, uh, we'll wrestle through each of them, and if the answer is only five minutes long, we'll be out early for the first time in two and a half years. So that would be okay, I think, for a lot of people as well. Uh, this morning, what we're dealing with is something that, uh, since January, we have been traveling through 1 Corinthians. And somewhere around chapter 7, we got into this idea of men and women in the church, and that is a bit of a hot-button topic in today's world. Uh, and so I addressed a little bit then, but today we're going to address more fully because my exact words were, we're a church that believes in complementarianism. And then I explained a little bit what that meant, but then because that wasn't the main idea behind that passage, I said, if you want this to be talked about further, you have to ask it for the summer series. Well, somebody asked. So this brings us, so I guess I have to be careful what I say. So we're going to talk about this. What does complementarianism mean? What are the different views that are out there in the church, or, or sorry, in Christianity? Why has our church come to this conclusion, or, or even our association as uh, the AGC, Associated Gospel Churches of Canada? Why have we kind of set ourselves here? Why do we think this is the most biblical view? We're going to look at all of those things this morning. I have taught on this in the past, and so when I went back and looked into my notes, I remembered uh, a, a few things that, that perhaps, maybe I hadn't forgotten, but have just kind of slid to the side for me. In the scriptures, what we read in Isaiah 117 is this. Isaiah writes, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. 
we as Christians are meant to be people that pursue justice all across the scope. When we see something that isn't right, we are called to take, take up that cause, to help those who are marginalized. And, and if you've been paying any attention in t- today's climate, is there are all kinds of inequalities, all kinds of injustices, all kinds of problems. And the question then becomes is how am I going to deal with this? What, what do I even think about these things? And, and sometimes as Christians and as churches, we have done a poor job at really entering into the mess and the difficulties and the pain of our history and the things that have been done and the things that have been said. And so when we think about uh, inequality, we as Christians, we as churches should be the front runners of saying, no, we're going to fight this battle. Because we think, and I'll explain this further this morning, but we think everybody, every single person who has ever been born is born in the image of God. And so God loves them desperately. God has plans and purpose for them, and we need to love and care for them the way that God loves them. One of the primary inequalities and I guess, overall issues in the New Testament church, right from the beginning, uh, when you start to read in the book of Acts and how the church starts to take place and all through the rest of the New Testament, was, was predominantly a racial problem. Jews and Gentiles mixing together in the church and now having to figure out, your culture says this and our culture says this and we think this and you think this. How do we come together in unity and worship the one true God together? How do we look past our differences? And, and I would actually argue is how do we celebrate those differences? God is a God of creativity, and God has created us all so uniquely. And I think when we are in a place that is multi-ethnic, multicultural, I think all that does is it displays the beauty of God's creation, of how God's gone, look, I haven't created just one type, one group, one race, one whatever it might be. God's created it all. And so as you read through the New Testament, you see, man, this battle, this, this challenge, it, it never seems to go away. No matter what community they're in, it's the same issue. Well, 2,000 years later, if you watch the news, we know these same issues exist. These same challenges are in front of us. One of the challenges that we have now that I'm sure has existed all throughout, but now is, is maybe a bit of more hot-button topic, is this idea of, of gender identification in the sense of men and women within the church. Are, are there differences? Are there similarities? What roles are we given? Is, is there a clear understanding from the New Testament in what and how we should act within the church? And of course, like I said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a number of weeks ago, as we walk through that, if you just take those verses, and, and there's a few passages that we're going to read this morning, if you just take those verses and you take them out of the context in which they fall in, man, you can have very different opinions. And you can have some very dangerous opinions, or you can try and make the Bible say things which the Bible isn't intending to say. And so that's what we're going to deal with this morning. But before we do that, I just want to say, I'm not trying to push this idea of, of the social gospel, if you've heard the social gospel. Um, as, as I read from Isaiah, uh, when I was reading through Isaiah in my own personal time, what I came to realize is that Isaiah often goes, here's the spiritual, here's the physical, and actually they're together almost all the time. 
And so the social gospel has this sense of, man, we need to really elevate the physical needs of people, but often at the cost of the spiritual needs. And I think that's very dangerous. Sometimes in our Christian histories, we have gone the other extreme, and we've gone, it only matters about the spiritual and not the physical. But when you read, especially through the book of Isaiah, or when you read through the book of James, what you see is that if you only try and attack one issue and only deal with the spiritual but ignore the physical, then you're not helping at all either. We're holistic people. And we should be, all, all of these issues should be viewed holistically. And so we want to be churches that deal with this. So we're not tr- talking about, man, uh, equality at the expense of truth. That's not at all where we're going. We're going, what does the Bible teach about equality? And how should we, as a church, move in that direction? So, that's before we get too far here, I'm going to deal with four views that have been taught within the church ever since, you know, the book of Acts came out. And we're going to deal with kind of the two extremes on either end. And I'm not really going to spend a whole lot of time on either of them because I just don't think there's any biblical support for either of them. And then there's two in the, kind of more in the middle. Uh, one, a little bit more, you could call it left or right or conservative or liberal. You could call it whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the point being is that both of those are argued from Scripture. And that's how we come to conclusion on anything. That's how our church has decided we are going to do things. Not based on experience, not based on only our logical uh, interpretations, but what does Scripture teach us and then we'll adapt to figure out, now how does what Scripture teaches us apply to our culture and our day? That's always the challenge that we have. So, the first view, and this has been um, a common view, especially in Christian circles over, let's say, the last couple of hundred years. And it is uh, a dangerous view. It's called patriarchy. Uh, often it's referred to as traditionalism. In this view, it says that men are superior to women and that women exist to serve men at all times. Real quick, I don't believe this, just to clarify. Don't get angry yet, Mervyn. Don't throw anything at me yet. We were on the roof all week, and there is not always great theology on the roof. So, so I'm going to try and not say anything that was said on the roof. Just, I'm just kidding, Merv. Okay, so uh, this says that, that women exist to serve men. Uh, completely unbiblical. And you don't have to go anywhere except in Genesis where God creates Adam and Eve. And we talked about this. And so if you want to go back into uh, the website and you can look on that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you you can find this a little bit more uh, completely. But when God creates Adam and Eve, God creates Adam and he says what? It's not good that man's alone. I'm going to create for him a helper, somebody who will complete him, somebody who that together will be able to accomplish the very task for which I am calling mankind to accomplish. He was not sufficient. He needed her. And and we talked about this, that actually that word helper that we sometimes think is like some kind of subservient issue is the very term that's used of God the Father in his relationship to Israel in the Old Testament more than any other term. So it cannot be some kind of a subservient thing. Right? So, it's just simply not biblical, this view that men are, are, are more important or have a higher standing or anything like that. The problem with this is that it has, uh, this view, it focuses on the oppression of women and it gives a type of misogyny that has nothing to do with the God of the scriptures. And like I said, unfortunately, the simple reality is that this tradition has been taught in many churches. 
and there has been much oppression, much inequality, and many women have been attacked or felt belittled or that you aren't important or that your gifts don't matter or some of those things we as a church are trying to say as clearly as we can, we do not hold that that is not true. If you are a woman this morning and you have felt any of those things in your upbringing, in your church experience, even in your secular experience, we don't hold to that. And we want to fight for you in that. As you were created in the image of God, you were created with gifts and purposes, and those gifts and purposes have no less or have no more value than any other person. We've been talking about this lots in 1 Corinthians, is that we are the body of Christ and we are indispensable to one another. I need you and you need me because that's how God has decided to make it run. And so it, it can't be in a sense of one is more important than the other. On the other extreme, <laughs> get ready. On the other extreme, we have the word feminism. Now don't throw anything just yet, right? Oh, thunder, right when I said it. Is that good? Okay. Moving on to the next view. Right, even that word is a problem because so many different people have so many different ideas about what that view holds. And, and this is a challenge that we have when we talk about scripture with people sometimes, is that we have to go back and redefine terms so often because what somebody says, even though they're the same words, might mean something very different than what we think. And so we have to clarify. So if we're looking at feminism on the sense of that men and women are equal standing before God, and that men need to fight for the rights of women in equality, then absolutely. Let's support that 100%. However, often what's happened in that is, is an argument of saying that there's no distinction now, and especially what we're going to read this morning is it seems very clear to me that God has made men and women with distinction, with some differences, and with some creative order issues in it that he has purpose and plans for. So again, there's plenty that's good inside feminism. Equality is an important issue, and historically women have been repressed uh, and abused, and some of those things need to be dealt with and, and the church needs to fight for. However, the problem is I think it's an overstatement where we're taking everything that the Bible says that is attached to masculinity and trying to say that that isn't there. And again, I think God meant every word that he said in Scripture. And so instead of watering down or, or trying to make something say what it doesn't say, I'd rather go, why does it say what it does say? So, we're going to look at passages like Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2. Uh, we're going to read some of those things. We're going to look at what they mean. We're going to look at what the differences between um, men and women culturally are in those texts. Now, here's the two middle views. Uh, there's egalitarianism, which is probably the predominant view in Western Christianity. There's a big difference here between Western Christianity and a lot of the other parts of the world. But this would be the predominant view here. The argument is that all scriptural texts, like the ones I just mentioned, which we're going to read, that all the roles of men and women are completely cultural and have no bearing in today's current culture. Now, again, I disagree with this view, and I'm going to explain why as we go through this. But the good part about the egalitarian view is that their argument still comes from Scripture. I interpret scripturally different than they do in that, and I think sometimes we can come to a, that consensus where we can agree to disagree. We still love Jesus. We can still worship together. 
We can still care for one another. We don't have to view the other person negatively or poorly or think, man, they're, I can't believe they're so wrong in this issue. We don't need to go there. We just simply need to say, I think this is where I land. This is what I think, and this is why I think it, and we need to then defend that with Scripture. And we don't need to then apologize uh, for that. So this leads us to what I believe is the most biblical and defendable position, which is complementarianism. So I'm going to read to you uh, a quote that I read a few weeks ago when we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, and it's a bit of a lengthier one, but it says it as clearly and concisely as I know how to explain it. So here's what it says. This is from Sam Storms. He writes this. Men and women are together created in the divine image and are therefore equal before God as persons, possessing the same moral dignity and value and have equal access to God through faith in Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to empower them for ministry in the local church and beyond. Therefore, women are encouraged, equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry in service to the body of Christ, and in teaching in ways that are consistent with the word of God. The principle of male headship should not be confused with, nor give any hint of, domineering control. Rather, it is to be the loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. The elders and pastors of each local church have been granted the authority under the headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight and to preach the word of God in corporate assembly for the building up of the body. The office of elder and pastor is restricted to men. So that's the complementarian view. Now again, if you don't agree with that, that's okay. We don't need to fight or argue uh, about that. And please don't throw your communion at me. That would be all kinds of heresy. Um, Actually, we just preached on that a few weeks ago, so that's uh, kind of ironic. One of the things that I think needs to be dealt with in this is, is what it's saying is this. is however God has equipped you, however God has created you, and however God has gifted you, he's done that so that you can serve the local body. So here's a good example. is This morning, we have a, a new sound lady, Kat. This is her second, third week doing it, and I helped her absolutely nothing today. Uh, I, I was there. I told her I wouldn't abandon her, but she did it. She did it great. She did it wonderful. Here's somebody that when we asked, she lives with us, so she didn't have any choice in this matter. But when we asked, you know, we need, we need some extra soundments, people that can, sound man, that right there, proof, okay, sound people, right, to help with that. And she was like, oh, I've never done that. Don't, I don't know anything about it. We were like, it's all good. Just come sit. We'll teach you. And now actually all of our sound people are all women except for me. And so here's a, a moment where it's like, have I, has God created me to serve in this way? Are these my gifts? I don't know, but how do you find out? You step in and you say, God, do you want me to do this? So far, Kat, you no longer have any authority to step away from the sound booth because it worked great today. Right? So we look at this and we go, how has God created me? There are places, no matter your giftings, no matter your personality, how God has created you to work within the context of the local church. The only difference in this sense, from egalitarianism and complementarian, is that what we hold to is that when the Bible talks about the primary role of teaching pastor or elders, that those are reserved to be for men. And I'll explain some of that in a few moments. That doesn't mean that we would not hire a woman to be a secondary or support staff on our church. Certainly, we would. And we did. We had Olivia in our internship role from 
about a year ago for about six months. And she did a great and a fantastic job. And we plugged her in in all kinds of places, some of which she knew was coming. And then COVID hit and lots, she just figured out as we went. And she was incredibly competent and reliable. And so what I want to focus on here is that the view of complementarianism has nothing to do with competency. It has to do with what God has called. Right? So we don't ever teach or believe this exists because somebody is not qualified. Because if that was true, well, just look at the priests in the Old Testament. Man, there was a lot of guys who really blew it. There was a lot who were just awful people. Sometimes God required them to give up their very lives in that moment for what they did or said. So it's not about competency. It's about what God has called and what God has asked. So let's read Ephesians 5, uh, 22. We're going to start. And this is the text that Shayla and I uh, use, I think, pretty much every single time that we do premarital counseling. There are certainly other things that we use, other resources, other passages. But this is kind of the number one that we deal with. So, so what I'm going to do is we're going to bounce around, we're going to read it, I'm just going to make just a couple of quick highlights of what's in the text, and then we're going to talk about it more holistically. So Ephesians 5, 22 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself a Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Oh, pardon me, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul writes this to the churches, uh, to, pardon me, to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, and says, here's what honors God with how we live in the context of marriage and within the church and Christ's body. So it, here's something for you to write down, jot down at a later time, is there's a book by Dr. Egricks called Love and Respect. How many have read it? Me and Shayla? Janette, did you say somebody? Ah, somebody I thought I had. Okay, you should all read it. Fantastic book. Uh, what Dr. Egerich argues is that in this text, specifically, is that men and women are created differently. You ever been married? You know that's true, right? We're created differently. We think differently. We see the world differently. Some of that is personality. Some of that is simply our gender and the way that we approach our lives. And he argues from this text that actually men are created with the desire to be respected, whereas women are created with the desire to be loved. Much like when you take a step back and you think, you know, I say this lots, is there's the prayers in the church and the doers, and the doers don't understand why the prayers don't do, and the prayers don't understand why the doers don't pray. Did I say that right? I think I said that right. Usually I say that wrong. Is there's just this tension of going, well, why do you see it that, like we need, we need to do this and the other? No, we need to, and, and both are right. 
neither are wrong. How many of you who are married have ever been in an argument and then, you know, hopefully shorter than later, but, but at some point you realized, oh, we're saying the same thing in different ways, right? It's, this is just the reality. And Dr. Egricks talks about this. There's actually a, on Right Now Media, so if you're part of our church, you have free access to Right Now Media. Uh, there's, a, there's a video series called The Crazy Cycle on it, and he talks at length about this, and it's super, super helpful. And so what Shayla and I often deal with is when we talk with people about premarital, we look at this and we go, here is how God has asked you to let your marriage represent to the world Christ's covenant relationship with his church. So your marriage has purpose and meaning to an unbelieving world. And this is the way that God has asked of it. All right, let's flip to um, 1 Timothy 2. Now, I preached on this not too long ago. Uh, I think it was around 20, uh, the beginning of 2020. So if you want to go back to this passage online, you're welcome to do that. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8 to 15, Paul writes this to T- Timothy. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, in love, and holiness with self-control. Now again, there's way more in there than we have time to go into. But if you want to jump online, you can find some of that. Simply put here is, we look at this and we go, okay, this is just totally cultural. It has no bearing on us. And if we do that, then we start to wrestle with how much of Scripture does apply to us. And when do we get to pick and when do we get to choose what's true and what's not true, what was true and what is no longer relevant? Well, here, the principle of the matter, it, it has nothing to do with whether you can braid your hair, but the principle of the issue in that text is there was a group of women in the church that Timothy was pastoring that were usurping the authority of those that God had placed in control and were outwardly trying to defy those in leadership. And Paul says, you cannot do this. This brings disunity to the body, and it is wrong. You have to move towards what is godly, towards the way that God has called things. And so if Paul's writing that to Timothy in Ephesus, somewhere around, you know, post-resurrection anyway, into the early church, then why would that only be relevant in that one culture and not today? Now again, do we have women in this church who are usurping the authority and trying to start fights and arguments? Maybe, maybe not, right? But the point is, if that is happening, well, then Scripture teaches us about that. And so we have a place to go back to and to say, here's what God has called us to do. If that issue does not exist, then praise the Lord. Everything's going great, and our body is working the way that God has designed it to be. That would be wonderful, and, and praise the Lord. I think our, our church is united and working really, really well together. First Peter one, three, sorry, First Peter 3, 1 to 7. Again, I preached on this not too long ago, um, I think the end of 2019. So you can look there, but it says this, chapter 3 of 1 Peter 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them 
do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your personal, sorry, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, we can go back because there's way too much in there. But simply at the beginning, you have this as Paul's saying, look, what's more important, if, if you're a wife and you have an unbelieving husband, what's most important is his salvation. So by the way you live and act and talk and and how you dress and how you behave, all of those things ought to point to Christ so that they can see him and that they will be one to Christ. I think that's a pretty good example of a good theme verse for all of our lives, isn't it? It's how we live, what we do, what we say, how we act. All of it ought to point others to Christ. And if it doesn't, and if it points them to ourselves, then there's a problem. And so we point others to Christ with how we live and what we do. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 to 40. We're not going to read that one because we're, we're just about there as we're studying through 1 Corinthians. So we're going to get there in a minute. Uh, but lastly, let's flip to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now, both of our men's and our women's Bible studies have gone through this fairly recently. So I hope this is somewhat familiar to lots of you. Um, But Paul writes this to Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Again, Paul writing to who? Verse 1 of chapter 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Right? So Paul is writing to the elect, to God's chosen people, and saying this is the way that you ought to live. This is what's important. These are where your focus is and your priorities should be. Show control in your life. Care for one another. He even says to slaves, right? And, and if, you, if you looked at the Right Now Media series by Chip Ingram, we talked about this a lot in our men's group anyway. Uh, I assume the ladies did as well. Is We look at that and we go, man, slaves should be fighting for the right to be free. And actually, Scripture does teach that a little bit. But in this case, in this text, in this passage, the focus is your personal freedom is not more important than your spiritual freedom. 
That's what's most important. That's what you should be fighting for. So as you can see, there's many passages in the New Testament. I've just picked just a few, but there's many of them that are dealing with, here's men, here's women within the context of the church. Paul and Peter specifically address them and say, these are the things that we are supposed to be doing. And these are written to the churches. So I don't know how we then look at this and go, all of this is cultural and has no bearing on me. Some of it is. And that's where it gets sticky. That's where it gets difficult. Is how do we go to some of these passages, read them, and go, man, what if this is cultural, and what if this is timeless truth that exists to teach me as a man or to you as a woman how to live and represent Christ well? There's really only one way to do that. Read through the whole book and study it like crazy. Figure out what was happening in that culture. What was happening in that church? What was happening at the time? What issues are being addressed? What things are specific that was a cultural problem right then and there that is being used as an example of? And what are the truths that come out of that so that we would know how to represent Christ with how we live? There's no simple, easy way to look at a passage, read it in just those 10 verses or those 7 verses, and go, this does not apply to me. If we do that, we're usurping God's authority and we're usurping the word of God. We ought to study and understand what it says. So, how much of this is um, cultural and how much of it's not? We have to fight and understand that. Now, again, I said, the issue is not uh, of competency or some people who are unqualified. In our young adult Bible study, we just studied about 30 weeks through the book of Acts. And in Acts, you find this really interesting thing where Luke goes out of his way and he says there's this missionary couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and that they're teaching and that they're proclaiming the word of Christ and all these things. And then Apollos comes on the scene, and in the context of that, and and you learn this in 1 Corinthians as well, is Apollos preaches like nobody who has ever preached. Phenomenal preacher. And people just want to hear what he says. But when Priscilla and Aquila hear it, they go to him and they clarify some things because he doesn't really, he doesn't fully understand all the nuances of his theology and they show him, it says, they show him uh, the way more clearly so that he can present them. But what's interesting in that passage is that at first Luke writes Aquila and Priscilla, but then focuses actually on Priscilla more in the second half of the text, showing that she was actually an incredibly gifted Bible teacher. There was a husband and a wife, and, and Luke goes out of his way to mention that the woman is the one who was actually the more gifted teacher. It's just a, it's just a little interesting trivia thing that as we read through the text, we start to go, okay, there's, there's no issue here. Luke's actually highlighting it. It's all through Scripture you find great women leaders like, uh, I'm just going to cherry pick a few here, Esther, Deborah, Miriam, and Priscilla. They were judges, prophets, evangelists, church planters, the only role, and Sam Storms pointed this out in that quote that I read, the only role that isn't given in the New Testament to a woman is the role of pastor and elder. Interestingly enough, the only role in the Old Testament that wasn't given to a woman was priest. And so for me, when we look at the Old Testament and then we read the New Testament, so we read about the Old Covenant and then we read about how actually it wasn't sufficient to forgive sin. But it was always pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus came, sin was then forgiven. But sometimes we then try to dichotomize it and go Old Testament irrelevant, New Testament relevant. But it's one God who has written for us all of Scripture that we might understand who he is. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. 
all of it points so that we would understand these things. And so to me, it seems like if God was going to change something and go, you know what, this, this, this doesn't work. Men are dropping the ball everywhere, and they are, okay? To be clear, if you read through the Old Testament, it doesn't take very long to figure this out. Our, our men's group, when we were studying Deborah in, in Judges, man, I, I think the ladies would have really enjoyed hearing that conversation because men were like, man, we suck. Like, this guy's been told, go and lead. No, not going to do it. Just going to be passive. What does that sound like? Maybe Adam and Eve in the garden. We'll get there in a minute. Sorry. Uh, but you see this all through the Old Testament. And, and sometimes women step into these places where God says, I'm going to use this person. But what's really neat about Deborah is Deborah looks at this and goes, uh, actually, I am not going to usurp the person that God has placed in authority over me. And so I will not do what this leader was asking her to do. She understood, even though she was way more qualified, way more competent, and actually she was a hero to her people because she did save people, whereas the person who was supposed to didn't. And so when you read through the Old Testament, you go, man, this, this would be a great moment. There haven't been any Old Testament priests that are women. Let's, let's start over and let's put women in the place of New Testament uh, pastors. But God doesn't do that. Now, again, the question of why, well, that's where we start to wrestle through. Is this an issue of competency? Well, it clearly isn't because, I'll say it again, men really drop the ball in Scripture a lot. And God doesn't just go, man, because you guys can't deal with it, I'm going to go a different direction. He actually goes, no, we're going to continue down this path because I have a calling and I have a purpose and I have meaning for you. 1 Timothy, and we read this, but I want to read this again because I want to clarify a couple of verses here. 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 14 says this. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and in holiness with self-control. So Paul, when he's talking about the roles of men and women, goes back to creative order to bring up, this is my argument. This is why this is the way that God has created things to be. So if Paul in the New Testament looks back to it and goes, this is the way God has designed things to, then who are we now, 2,000 years later, to go, the New Testament writers had it wrong. They didn't get it. We are more equipped now. We understand more clearly. So what does this mean? What do these two verses mean? Here's the, this is the best... Uh, response that I found. One commentator put it so, so clearly. He says this. In verse 13, Paul referenced the order in which Adam and Eve were created as support for the idea of men taking the primary leadership role in all spiritual matters. Continuing his references to Adam and Eve, Paul now refers to the fall of mankind. The catastrophe is charged to Adam. The sin is considered his, though the first to actually disobey was Eve. Paul's uh, specifies here that Adam was not deceived. That clarifies that even though Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he did not so due to the serpent's influence, he did so by taking the fruit from Eve. Instead, the woman was deceived. In Genesis 3.13, Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. All people in history have done as Eve. They have sinned and are transgressors. Paul has not written to Eve Pardon me, Paul has not written to make Eve or women appear as worse sinners than men. Instead, he was grounding his teaching about church leadership in the order of creation, man then woman. 
all human beings are sinners in need of the grace of God. And Paul will actually go on later in the next verse to provide an important contrast related to Eve's role as the first transgressor. And the simple story of that is that that's the first messianic prophecy, that true your seed, Eve, one will come who will deal with sin once and for all. Notice in Genesis 3 verse 9, in the Garden of uh, Eden, God calls out and says, where are you? And do you remember who he talks to? says it calls out to the man. Where are you? When you read through that account and you start to let this sink in, you realize that Eve is having this conversation with the serpent. Adam's not really mentioned. Not talked about. Where is he? She's having this conversation with the serpent. The serpent deceives her, lies to her, gives her a part truth that she then goes, man, I think, I think God's holding out on me. And so she takes the fruit and she eats it. And then what does it say? And she gave some to her husband who was right there with her. Right? We look at it and we go, Eve's the one who sinned first, yet it was to Adam that God charged sin for all mankind And so the argument could be made that the first sin is not Eve eating the fruit, but Adam's passivity in not protecting the one that he was called to protect and to care for. He did not lead the way that God had asked him to. And so God says to to man, where are you? What's the first thing that Adam does? Well, you might as well blame your wife. Right? That seems like a good plan. The woman that that you put here with me, she did it. She tricked me. She is the one. Adam's not doing so good here. Right? Like first he's super passive and doesn't do the very thing that he's supposed to do. Then he blames his wife instead of going, we're a team. And we both made a choice. Then he blames Eve. Now again, don't go home and hear this and go, you can't blame me. Right? That's not what I'm trying to say. That's not the point of the text. But the point is that Adam is not doing what he was called to do. And yet, thousands of years later, Paul still references back to this and goes, yet this is the creative order. This is the way that God has intended it. This is what man and women are supposed to do to honor God with how they live. Did Adam do it? No. And in fact, most of Scripture exists for us to look back on and go, man, the Israelites just don't get it. Like they just walked through the Red Sea. And now they're worshiping a golden image that they've created because, like, all of it, you just read and you go, this, people are dumb. Sorry, is that rude? Um, When you read through, that's just what you see. It's like they just don't get it. Well, nothing changes because then the New Testament comes along. And what does Jesus say to his disciples over and over and over again? Do you still lack faith? Don't you get it? You've been with me for three years, watching me teach and do miracles. Do you still not understand? There's this moment where Jesus is uh, sleeping in the boat. You remember the story? And there's a big storm that comes up. He's sleeping soundly. They're all freaking out. They're going to die. And they wake him up. And Jesus comes to the storm. And what the text says this. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? You didn't know? You hadn't figured this out yet? Like, they all knew he was the Messiah, at least intellectually. But all of a sudden, they start having to go through some stuff to go, do I really actually believe this is true? Are my actions going to do this? Are are they going to support this? As we as people 
fall into the same patterns of sin, the same problems. And God very easily could have addressed these things and went, I have a different and a new way, but he doubles down. And he goes, this is how I've created it. This is the purpose. This is for how we want or, or should be at work within the body of Christ. Now again, clarification here. I'm not talking about a woman being a CEO at a secular company or, or even a parachurch company, I, I think. I'm not saying that those things are wrong or bad. I'm talking about in the context of the local church and specifically within our marriages. How do we declare to God, or sorry, how do we declare to the world who God is and his covenant relationship with us by the way in which we interact with one another? That's what I'm talking about. And that's what scripture deals with. And so, again, the issue is not what all these many things that women can't or shouldn't do. Scripture says, I've, God says, I have created the office, the role of elder and pastor to be a men-driven role. Not because they're more competent or more qualified. But simply for this reason, and you're not going to like it, because God gets to choose. We talked about this at our young adult Bible study last week. Is there's a lot of stuff in Scripture that sometimes is difficult to understand, and, and we try and rationalize, and we try and like create little theology like headings so that we can just make it make sense real easy and have a nice. But the simple reality of all of it is, is that God gets to pick. I just finished reading through Job, and as I was going through it, and and so if you don't know Job, the beginning of the text says there was this righteous man blameless. And Satan kind of says, God, the only reason that he follows you is because you've blessed him. And so God kind of says, go ahead, do whatever you want to him. So he loses, Job loses everything. And then through the next number of chapters is this argument between Job and his friends and his friends are going, God is just, which is true. And so they're saying, so you must have done something wrong, Job, because God would not allow this to happen to you if you had not sinned, because God is just. And as you, the reader, are reading this, you're kind of going back and forth in this journey going, I think Job's right. No, I actually think his friends are right. But what we've already learned as the reader is that Job didn't sin. That's, or at least that's not the reason. He was blameless before God. And yet God allowed Satan to take everything. And so the rest of the book, if you read carefully, you start to see is an issue. It's an attack on is God just and does God do the things that I think he should do? What is God's answer to Job when God finally answers? rebuke. Where were you when I created the world? You don't know what's just. You think you know what's just, but you have no comprehension. So God says, I get to do what I get to do because I'm God. And we can look at that and we go, man, that's really egotistical, but it's not. We just don't understand the mind of God. Because God created us, we're very finite. We're very limited. Are we going to serve a God who gets to do things differently than we would? than we think is right or than we think is just. The Bible teaches it pretty plainly. There is none that are good, not one. Right? God alone knows all these things. And so this is why we as a church, our grouping of churches, we have come to this point where we say, Scripture teaches this. Sometimes I don't really know how to make it all just make perfect good sense and, and, and just you know fall into place nicely, but it's here and I read it. And if if we approach Scripture with our minds already made up, we can make Scripture say whatever we want. It's very easy to do that. 
Or, and this is the right way to do it, we can read scripture, we can go, how am I going to learn how to understand God and start to formulate a theology of whatever it is. In this case, men and women within the church. If we fight from an issue of history or personal experience, then we already come to the scriptures with a presupposed idea and we make the scriptures bend to our will. And that's never good and that's never right. Again, it's not an issue of competency. It's not an issue of equality. In fact, as we read through, as we study through text, the more that we learn is, man, these men that God has called are just failing left, right, and center. How can we now learn from these things so we do the very thing that God has called us to do? Well, my argument would be it's already started in Genesis. It's not good that man's alone. So God creates a helper for him so that together they can do the very thing that God has called them to do. The church needs all of us. God has called all of us. So wherever your gifts are, whatever your talents are, whatever your abilities are, simply say, God, where do you want me to serve? And get plugged in. Because when we start to think that job is more important than this job, we're already skewing the whole frame of reference about this thing. Rather, let's step back and say, God, to what do you want me to do because you get to pick? There's no better or worse spot to serve. There's no more meaningful or less meaningful. There's the body, and we are one. Let's pray.